Wow, now, <clears throat> John said he's put some limiters in this machine, in this, uh, what do you call it, PA system. So when I get a little loud, which I never do, but when I express myself a little more ver uh, um, vociferously than what I normally do, he's made it limiting. So you should be able to hear me in a nice, monotone way. Well, thank you for being here. This morning, as you can see, a lot of the flowers aren't here. The thorns are here, but not in a lot of the flowers are here. They're all at the ladies' retreat. Uh, let's be sure to be praying for our wives, our daughters, our mamas, the ladies in the, in the uh, church, that God would do a very deep, very strong, very lasting, very effective work of ministry in their hearts. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing, and I think this morning, unless I go a little longer than what I intend, we will finish this morning with the last two festivals. Remember what we've been talking about. God gave Israel the law, and the purpose of the law was to reveal God's character. The law is a revelation of who God is, and the Ten Commandments delineate the way we are to relate to this God of ours. And so he gives that law, then he realize, and then obviously he realizes that in giving the law and calling his people to be obedient to this law, they cannot do it. The law is good and holy, but it doesn't have power in and of itself to give us the ability to obey it. And the central issue of worshiping God, the central issue of worship of God is obedience. It's not singing loudly. It's not dancing. It's not raising hands. It's obedience. That is the heartbeat of our worship with God. That is then expressed through raising of hands, worship, as we call it, singing, dancing, you know, praising God, all of that is good, but all of that is out of the root of obedience. So let's make sure we understand that when the Lord calls us to worship him, it is a call to come to him and to submit our hearts and our lives to him in such a way that allows the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of his son, to transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we daily or more and more being conformed into Christ through our obedience to the word of God. And as that process continues, our worship of God is growing and maturing. Because what I think I see sometimes is that we disconnect worship from obedience. It's worship and then it's obedience. We can't do that. The Bible doesn't allow for it. And so the obedience of the people of God cannot occur to the place where God wants it to occur in the Old Testament because they don't have the power. It can occur. They can do it by faith. They were called to obey the law by faith just as we are called to obey the law by faith. And so in that economy, God provided a sacrificial system that would deal with their failures. 
Remember that. The sacrificial system dealt with their failures. So the people of God would be able to be maintained as God's people, as God, through the sacrificial system, forgave their sin, put it away for another year. And so part of that whole issue of sacrifice and ceremony, the Lord gave seven festivals. Remember, we've talked about five of them already. And each one of these festivals had to do with an aspect of God's way of redeeming his people through the coming of the Messiah. We talked about that, that each of the festivals has something to do specifically with the person and work of the Messiah who was to come. So rather than reteaching the whole thing this morning, we pick it up in the last two festivals. Now, in the last month of the, of the uh, I'm sorry, the seventh month of the year, the month of Tishri, this is the Jewish month, remember, 30 days. The last three festivals occur during this seventh month. Remember the first festival beginning on the first day of the month called, we call it Rosh Hashanah. What is that? The Festival of Trumpets. Remember, for those 10 days, the 10 dark days of, uh, of Israel, the 10 days where Israel was called, you know, to repentance and so on. So we talked about that. We talked about perhaps it could have something to do, and many believe it is, analogous to the rapture when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, remember, and the, those in Christ will be taken up to be with him forever. We talked about some believe that in the church and some don't believe that. For those who believe it, believe it biblically. For those who don't see it that way, see it biblically. But let no one in the church be contentious with these issues of disagreement. And we discussed that. Why? Because the issue of disagreement is grievous to the heart of God. He would rather us to be in agreement and loving one another rather than, I think, understanding to the way we think we need to all of these issues because he hasn't given us absolute clarity in these issues. I wish he had. I wish Paul would have said, look, what's going to happen is this. A trumpet is going to sound, and then everybody on earth who is in Christ is going to be raised up, and there's going to be a seven-year I wish he would have done that, right, Frank? It would have been so much easier for us, but Paul didn't do that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit didn't give it to him that way. So there is misunderstanding or lack of clarity in these areas. So we did the Feast of the Trumpets. This morning we'll do Yom Kippur and then we'll do the Feast of Tabernacles. We've done Yom Kippur before, but allow me just to go through it one more time to clarify and to refresh our memories. All of the seven festivals, you remember, are listed in chronological order, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, in Leviticus, what number? 23. In Leviticus 23, if you want to go to one place that lists all the festivals in order in one location, it's chapter 23 of Leviticus. They are listed in other locations, but in Leviticus 23, they come together as one presentation. So Leviticus 23, 26 to 32, <clears throat> the Lord gives Moses the command, I want you to begin on this 10th day of the month, and we're going to have this sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, the sacrifice which will atone for the people's sin for the past year. It's called Yom Kippur. The word Yom means day. Remember the Kippur is what? The lid or the covering over the Ark of the Covenant. Remember we did that several weeks or months ago. Remember the Kippur is a mercy seat, which is at lid of gold upon which 
there are two cherubim, remember, facing one another and the wings touching one another. Remember that. And so that's the kaporth or the covering, that which comes between us having broken the law and the law itself, that which stands between us and the judgment of God so he can have mercy upon us. So it's the day of covering, the day of forgiveness, the day of God passing over our sin, if you would, as he did in Passover, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, remember, is on the 10th day of Tishri. Now, what month is Tishri? The seventh month of the year. Interesting, seven. You see these sevens regularly throughout the Old Testament and the New. The seventh month. And every festival, all of these seven festivals begin and end with a special Sabbath. Once again, I remind us, <clears throat> the festival begins, the first day of the festival is a holy convocation, a holy gathering, a holy coming together. It is a putting aside of the daily activities and work and regulations and whatever of the week, of the normal work day. Come aside and come unto me, the Lord says, and enjoy this festival. Take the benefits of this festival. Participate in this feast that the Lord gives us. These are times of assembly before God. Every one of them begins with a special Sabbath. So when we look at the Bible and we see this particular festival began on the Sabbath, we don't want to think as Westerners, we don't want to think as non-Jewish people because this is a Jewish thing. And so when we see the word Sabbath in the Old Testament, we, or even in the New, we don't want to automatically think, what, Saturday. Don't want to do that. Don't do that. Well, Sabbath is the last, don't, don't do that. Why? Because it may be a special Sabbath. Because there were special times of gathering that the Lord gave his people. And every one of them was called a day of rest, a holy convocation, a day of setting aside, consecrated just for the Lord. So these were special Sabbaths. Interesting when John talks about the crucifixion, he calls it the day of preparation. For that was a high holy day. What does it mean a high holy day? The, the Sabbath Saturday weren't called high holy days. They were called holy days, but not high holy days. So that meant that something about that Passover on that particular Passover when Jesus died was a special Sabbath. Wasn't the normal Sabbath. The day before it then was a day of preparation. It wasn't the normal Sabbath. Friday. It was a different day. Do we see this? And so it wasn't that Friday and Saturday. That's pretty clear. Otherwise, you know, I, you know it wasn't. Let's just go on. I'll get too far into that. <clears throat> so why, why was this most important Israel's most important feast? This is Israel's most important feast. Why? Because what happened on Yom Kippur, we've already talked about this, but I'm just going through it hopefully quickly. Yom Kippur was a work of God that had to do with Israel's continuance as God's people. If God accepted the sacrifice of the high priest on behalf of the people's sin, if he put the sin away for another year, if he put off his wrath against sin of this people for another year, then they could continue in relationship and fellowship with God. If he did not accept the, accept the sacrifice, then he had to deal with his nation in great judgment. And so this was a very, very serious time of the year for them. While the first three spring fests, you remember the, what were they? Passover, 
unleavened bread, and first fruits. <clears throat> While the first three spring festivals celebrated the Lord's Passover in Egypt and the Feast of Weeks celebrated the harvest, Yom Kippur was a feast that dealt with Israel's sin, assuring them that their continued relationship with God would not be jeopardized. So that's what this one was. We remember that the name of this festival indicated its significance. It was a day of covering or the day of mercy for God's people. Remember, in the afternoon, after a morning of special washings and sacrifices, the priest began, the high priest began the morning of special offering and sacrifices and washings for himself. The high priest, having made sacrifice for his own sin, first he had to go into the Holy of Holies and present the blood of the Lamb for himself as his own cleansing because even the high priest could not go into the Holy of Holies with sin upon him that had not been dealt with. So he had to have that cleanse. And so as the high priest, he had to be Israel's representative who himself was not guilty of sin at that time of offering. Now that should say something about our high priest who was coming. So having made sacrifice for his own sin, he approached the brazen altar where two goats awaited him. Remember, there were two goats at the altar. One for Yahweh, one for the Lord, and one for Azazel. Remember the, the scapegoat, the, the goat of putting away. I'll get back, I'll get to that in a moment. But most of you should remember this. We've already gone through it. The high priest, remember, sacrificed the goat designated for Yahweh, the goat designated for the Lord. That's the goat where they slit the throat, the blood was poured into the basin, and that's the goat of sacrifice. And he carried the blood of this goat into the Holy of Holies in, the, in a golden bowl. Into the Holy of Holies he went with the blood in this golden bowl. He stood before the mercy seat, and with his little finger, he dipped his finger into the blood and sprinkled it seven times against the mercy seat. Seven times against the mercy seat. How do we know the sacrifice was accepted? Because he was able to come out of the Holy of Holies. If it weren't accepted, what would have happened to the high priest? He would have died. Because the Lord says, nobody can come into my presence with sin and corruption and remain alive. And so the priest is able to come out because God has accepted the cleansing of his own sin and the blood for his people. So he can come out. So after leaving the Holy Holies, the high priest returns to the second goat and lays his hand on it, confessing the sins of the people. Remember, he laid his hands on that goat and began to confess the people's sin for that previous year. Then that goat was what? Led into the wilderness, never to return. Goes into the wilderness and it dies in the wilderness. So what do we learn? From this festival, it typified the atoning work of our priests. Yom Kippur was God's work in atoning for the people's sin in a way that was not a lasting atonement. It was a temporary atonement year after year. It was atonement that depended upon the activity of the priest for that year. And then the next year you had to wait for and hope that the next atoning sacrifice on Yom Kippur was accepted. So year after year, 
the atoning of the sin was made for the people, only giving them a very short period of assurance. And that assurance had to do with the activity of what happened in that Holy of Holies. But you see, our high priest, Jesus, and his sacrificial death on the cross has made the full payment of God's wrath against our sin forever and has put away our guilt and its curse, securing eternal redemption for us. So what that high priest did in a type, in bits and pieces, if you would, in that which was not permanent, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the type in a permanent way. So what the Old Testament high priest did in an unpermanent way, Jesus succeeds in doing in a permanent way. So how do the people know that the priest's sacrifice was accepted as atoning for their sin? How did they know that? How did the people know that what the high priest did in that room inside the tabernacle, which they couldn't see, they couldn't see into that room, it was inside the tabernacle. All they know is a priest went in, he disappeared. Can you imagine how that must have been for those people? Waiting, hoping what? That he who went in is coming back. Because if he went in for our sin, the only way our sin is pardoned and the only way we know it is for him to do what? come back does that tell you about someone he who went to the cross and then was buried and was put out of their sight he's gone well we'll learn in the next week or two what happened where he was what was going on he's gone well how do you know that that atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is for us how do we know that he came back He's back, and he has sent the Holy Spirit as the down payment, as the proof that God has accepted his sacrifice as a payment of all our sin. So we who have the Holy Spirit, believers, all believers have the Holy Spirit, we know what? That we are forgiven. Why? Because the Holy Spirit would not reside in a person whose sin is not forgiven. And so if you're ever worried about, am I forgiven of a particular sin? Is the Holy Spirit living in you? Well, yes. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in the body of a person whose sin, even one sin, is unforgiven. Why? Because it's a polluted temple. Every sin that we ever have, are, and ever will commit must be cleansed away by the blood of Christ in order for this sanctuary, this body of ours, to be spiritually purged and purified of sin as an acceptable habitation for our holy God through the Holy Spirit. Do we see that? So that's why I know my sins are forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean that I walk without sin. But that does mean that when I walk and I sin, now that I am forgiven, I can go to a holy God, not in fear and trembling and trepidation as they did in the Old Testament, but in confidence.
to confess my sin before a loving and holy Father who has forgiven my sin in Christ at the highest price and accepts me into that forgiveness by that, I accept it because of that forgiveness and cleanses me of the defilement in my body, in my mind of that as he calls me and moves upon me by his spirit to change my mind about this sin. I don't want to sin this way. I will not sin this way. I will refuse to do this. I will go to God and I will say, Father, once again, I have sinned. I thank you for forgiving me. I thank you for that. But I have sinned and now I'm asking by the power of your spirit that you would cause my heart to repent. What? Change its mind about this sin and I ask you to cleanse away the activity that which causes this sin to manifest itself in me purify my heart deal with the issue of weakness by your spirit deal with this area that causes me to sin that is an easy target for me by the enemy cause me to take up the shield of faith to wield the sword of the spirit and to not give in to the defiling thoughts and activities and feelings and desires and ways of the enemy don't give in to that father enable me and infuse me with self-control remember the controlling factor of the Holy Spirit so that when temptation begins to fire it's you know the darts of temptation begin to fire against me I will be able by the power of <coughs> of the spirit to say no the weakest the reason we're the weakest in sin now I want you to think just for a moment just stop for a moment and think this what sin gives you the biggest problem just stop for a moment don't tell us what sin gives you the biggest problem does somebody do all of us have a particular sin that gives us the biggest problem am I the only, only you, you and I are the only two seven of us how many of us have a particular sin that gives us the biggest problem? Anybody? Raise your hand if you do. Isn't there a sin category, right? Okay, fine. Great. I say, so what? Oh, so what? Yes, so what? Why? Why do you say that, brother? Because God has provided first that sin is forgiven and has given us everything necessary for life and godliness that when that flaming arrow comes against my mind my thoughts my affections my desires whatever it is whatever the reason for it whatever it wants to produce whatever it is I by the Holy Spirit because I have the Holy Spirit in me because you have the Holy Spirit in you because of that I can effectively say no and the reason we sin brethren I'm talking about conscious sin you know what I'm talking about. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The reason we sin is because we refuse to say a God-empowered, impacting no to Satan. No. Now, I don't say try it out. I don't ever say try anything in Christ. I say do it. Paul never says, why don't you try this? He says do it. So the next time, and it won't take long today, that you get one of those things that you know is a sin, your feelings, your desires, your attitude, whatever it is. Wait a minute. This is a flaming arrow from Satan. Wait a minute. 
I don't have to sin. Wait a minute. Satan, you cannot make me sin. Wait a minute. I will not sin. Can you say amen? I mean, do, do you see this? We're weak in these areas because we refuse to use the armor that God has given to us. So I don't have to pray, oh, God, help me, God. Johnny's already helped you. Deliver me. He's already delivered you. Now he tells you what? Use what I've given you. Amen? Let's stop whining about this stuff, and let's start using the armor of God that he's given us. Amen? I just don't have the desire to read the Word of God. I'm not interested in your desire. The Bible says read the Word of God. How many of you mamas and dads, not too many moms in here, but how many of you dads when your little babies came home from school, I don't want to study. Oh, 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 you don't want to? Oh, it's okay. <laughs> he doesn't want to study. It's okay. <laughs> Get in your room and go do your homework. You ain't eating until you do your homework. <laughs> Isn't that right? Come on. Didn't, did, you, did you insist that your children do your, their homework? Did you ever have to do that? Now, if Frank Laurie insisted on that, this is Sweetie Pie. If Frank did it, the rest of us can also do it. You see? So, so I, I don't feel like praying. I, I don't feel like going to church. I, I, I don't. We do it because we're God's people. And we do it to honor him and obey him. Amen? That's why we do it. Doing it. God releases and develops the feeling and the desire of it. No, he doesn't want us to do things out of rote. But sometimes he wants us to do things out of rote so we can get deeper into him. He doesn't always give us the feelings and the desires. We have to do it because he says to do it. Why? He's the king and we're not. Feast of Tabernacles. Again, Leviticus 30, 23. 33, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying on the 15th day, remember, the first day was trumpets, the 10th day was Yom Kippur, and the 15th day now of Tishri this last month. On the 15th day of this month, seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths, sometimes called tabernacles, <clears throat> booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be what? A holy convocation, a Sabbath. You shall do, not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, this is the great and the last day of the feast. On the eighth day you shall hold another holy convocation. It's a Sabbath. And present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly and you shall not do any ordinary work. Do we understand about Sabbaths now in the Old Testament? This was the last of the seven feasts. It is also known as the Feast of Ingathering. And was celebrated after all the crops had been harvested and gathered. Remember the harvest begins when? 50 days after first fruits. 50 days the festival harvest. What do we call it? Pentecost. That's when the harvest begins. That's when you go out into the field and begin to gather all the harvest. Well, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Ingathering <clears throat> is celebrated after the harvest has been gathered. It's happened. 
The feast was a reminder of God's provision during the 40-year wilderness journey and was celebrated with great joy that remembered God's faithful provision in the completion of the harvest. It's a celebration that says what God has done and what God has said he's going to do and all of God's faithfulness is all gathered into this feast. This is the most celebratory feast of all the feasts. This is the one which is the most joyous of all of them because it's celebrating the outworking and the accomplishment of all that God had provided, uh, promised rather, rather, and then provided for the good and for the welfare of his people. This is a culminating feast that gathers up all the, what all the others have stood for and have accomplished. And in this feast, all of them are comprehensively gathered together, and this is what is being celebrated in this particular feast. It gathers all of the work that God has done in the other festivals and celebrates that work in this particular feast. I want you to get that. It celebrates, all gathers up, all that God has done in the other feast and celebrates it in the coming together. Tabernacles began on the 15th of Tishri and lasted for seven days during which the, then the great day is the eighth day, the final day. Uh, and the people will build, were to build huts or booths as a reminder of their temporary housing in the wilderness. So they were to come out of their houses, come to the city of Jerusalem if they could do so, and in that area build these little temporary huts and houses to be indicative of the fact that God has gathered his people together for a celebration before him. It was a celebration of God's faithful keeping his people in the wilderness until they were able to get into the promised land. It was during this feast that Solomon, remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, this is the feast that Solomon, during which Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the completed temple. Remember the temple was constructed. And once the temple was constructed, the Ark of the Covenant came into the temple in chapter 5. I think it's about verse 2 or 3 that begins that. In the... Uh, um, in Jerusalem, the temple is completed, the Ark of the Covenant comes in. What is the Ark of the Covenant? It is the visible presence of God. You remember that. And so in chapter 6 is the whole dedication, the, the, uh, the time of uh, doing what they needed to do to dedicate this, to praying and so on. And then in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, what happens in chapter 7 of Chronicles? When Solomon is praying, what happens? The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the, listen to me now, the light of God's presence fills the temple. The work of the temple is completed. Now God will dwell with his people in this great temple that Solomon has constructed. The light of the glory of God comes down in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 1 through 10. This feast falls on the beginning of the rainy season also. So it might be like today, the rainy season. Why? As a result, it was a feast that anticipated the coming of the rain that would bless the fields with life-giving water. So it accomplished several things. It was a remembrance of the time when the glory of God settled upon the temple the light of God's presence. It was also a feast that anticipated all the life-giving, flowing water of God that would come upon the land to replenish the land, to refresh the land, to create the ability for this land to have the crops for the next year. 
in celebration of the coming of this blessed blessing of rain. Each morning of the feast, the high priest would walk to the pool of Siloam, carrying a golden pitcher, which he filled with water, and then returned to the temple. This was a ceremony each morning of the feast. As he approached the water gate, three blasts of the silver trumpets were sounded, and the priest would recite Isaiah 12, 1 through 3, in unison. In that day you will say, I will bless you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what they would recite. The high priest then ascended the stairs of the temple and poured the water into two silver basins, representing God's blessing of rain for the next year's harvest. So you see, it's very much water is involved in this. In the midst of the celebration, remember this years, years later, Jesus is in Jerusalem during this temple, uh, during, in uh, Jerusalem during this festival. Listen to what he says in chapter 7 of, of John. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me to drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. Here's this celebration of water, the life-giving water from God, in, you know, from heaven, from God, to replenish the land and to refresh the land and, and create the ability for this people to continue as God's people. All of this water ceremony back and forth and this singing of songs and so all of a sudden in the midst of all of this, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the water of life. Come to me. Now, you know, when we read John 7, as we read John 8 and other areas, this doesn't mean much to us. What impact must this have had upon these people when all of a sudden this man stands up and he effectively says, what you celebrate as the life-giving water, I am God's life-giving water. If you want life, if you want the flowing work of God, the ministry, the presence of God, this is what you're celebrating here. I am the fulfillment of that. Can you imagine how these people felt? <gasps> Do you understand and, and reason why the Pharisees were so upset with this man? They had a right to be upset because if this man isn't the Messiah, he's an extreme blasphemer. And in their understanding, he was a blasphemer. He stood up in the middle of this and said, come to me if you're thirsty because I'm the life-giving water. Remember that? It's amazing. You see, Jesus affirms that he is a source of life and blessing for the people which the water represented. Remember the water representation, again, of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Genesis 1, what? The Holy Spirit and water associate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon or hovered upon the face of the water. Spirit immediately associated with the presence of water. During each evening of the feast, there was an elaborate celebration of lights anticipating the water ceremony for the next day. And the entire city was filled with people carrying candles, lights everywhere. Everywhere there were lights 
representing and anticipating the day of the coming of the water. So remember what happened. On the eighth and final day of the feast, Jesus stood up in John 8, 12, and what did he say? I am the light of the world. I am the light. You remember the Shekinah that came down, and we celebrate that as part of this feast, and we remember, I am that light. I mean, this is astounding. I am the light of the world. And you remember, continuing in John 8, because that's 8, 12, continuing on toward the end, and at the end of John 8, Jesus is talking to the, the, um, the um, what's it called, the Jewish people and the Pharisees and the leaders, and there's a debate going on about being children of Abraham, and you're not children of Abraham. Well, yes, we are. You know, we've always been free. We're free right now. Of course, we're under Roman bondage, and Jesus says, you know, if you've been free, and you would believe in me, and then he, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Remember, he is a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. That's 844, and then we move talking about Abraham and Jesus. Jesus said, you know, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He said, what are you talking about? You only, that ain't 50 years old. How could Abraham see your day? And he said this in 858. Here's one of the most astounding verses of all the Bible. You need to know where it is in 858. 858 of John. You need never to forget this verse. 858, 858, 858. He stands up and he says, before Abraham was, in other words, what? Existed. I am. And when he said that, they picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he is saying, I am the God of creation. And I am the one with whom Abraham met. And I gave Abraham the direction. I entered into covenant with Abraham. I am that same God. Before Abraham was, I am. One of this... It is the most astounding self-proclamation that Jesus makes of himself and the clearest one. He says, I am the same I am in Exodus. Beginning, I am in Genesis 2-4, the Lord God. I am Yahweh, Elohim, and continuing all through, I am that God. You see, Tabernacles anticipates when the Lord will finally ingather his people to himself in the new heaven and new earth. It is the festival of ingathering of all of God's people coming together, all of God's people from all around the world coming together. It anticipates the return of Jesus. Remember in John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus said this to the disciples as he's about ready to be crucified. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He says, for in my Father's house are many, what, mansions or rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go away, I will return and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles typifies and anticipates the return of the Lord and the gathering in of all of God's people into the new heaven and into the new earth. <clears throat> The seven festivals collect and comprehensively deal with and celebrate the redemptive work of God, which began in Genesis 3, 7, when God did not put Adam and Eve to death. Remember, the animal skin 
Genesis 3.21, the blood that was shed, and continued in types and shadows and in bits and pieces and in foreshadowings all the way through the Old Testament, God is saying, I am sending my anointed. The word anointed is for the word Messiah. It is the Greek word Christos. It is a word from which we get Christ. My anointed one, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The Jews did not understand that the anointed one would be God himself incarnate. They didn't understand that. And, of course, they would not have understood that. And so all these years anticipating, I'm coming, I'm coming. And everything you see in the Old Testament <clears throat> is a statement of its fulfillment that is coming in one man and in one work, that work of obedience. Jesus comes, and from the moment he's conceived to the moment he dies, he is the obedient man, obedient even to death, the death on the cross. Remember what Paul talked about in Philippians 2. And as a result of that, we are here today because a man has obeyed God and we have been collected into that man who has obeyed God. And in Christ, God sees us as having obeyed him. Having forgiven us and cleansed us, we are now justified, declared as not guilty. And God deals with us as obedient children. If he didn't deal with us that way, then we could not be his children. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is a propitiation, the sin-atoning one for our sins, but not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so what should we do? When we sin, we confess our sin. And we allow God as we cooperate and ask him, to deal with our sin so we can begin to overcome it. And we do what we're knowing to do. We do what James 4, 7 says. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. We do that. We confess. We come to God. We call upon him for the power of the Holy Spirit. We change our minds about it. We don't wait for our minds to be changed. We change our own mind. That's wrong, what I just did. We submit ourselves to God. Then we resist the devil. We resist the devil. We say what? No. Come on. We say what? No. And what's going to happen? Every time a spirit-empowered no comes out of your mouth, what will the devil do? He flees from us. Now, if you have to say no 88 times a day, say it 88 times a day. So what we're going to do next week, we're going to look at the fulfillment <clears throat> of all of this that we've talked about in Hebrews and see how Hebrews connects all of this into our Christian faith uh, up to date, of today. Thank you a lot. Thank you.